Southern Foodways Alliance work wouldn't be possible without generous donors. Today we thank Maker's Mark, a family-owned distillery in Loretto, Kentucky, that still rotates barrels by hand and dips each bottle of bourbon in their signature red wax. It's the perfect bourbon for sipping on your porch in the cool of the evening. We're also grateful to longtime friends Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned foundry in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. From Camp Dutch ovens to cast iron skillets and grill pans, Lodge makes the cookware that you need for your socially distanced dinner parties and camping vacations. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Amanda Little is a journalist who writes about the environment and about innovation. She's a professor of investigative journalism and science writing at Vanderbilt University. And she has shown a particular fondness for far-flung and sometimes hard-to-stomach reporting that's taken her to ultra-deep oil rigs, down manholes into sewage plants, and inside monsoon clouds. Amanda is the author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. That book, her latest, explores how we'll feed humanity sustainably and equitably in the climate change era. She traveled to 18 states and 13 countries and into top secret labs and apple groves, too, researching this book. Melissa talked with Amanda about the urgent need to reconcile traditional agriculture with innovative technology so that we can feed ourselves without destroying the planet and each other. Welcome to Gravy, Amanda Little. It is September 2020 as we're talking, and in addition to the global pandemic that we're all living through, in just the last three weeks, we've seen, or a few weeks, maybe not three, we've seen uh, uh, Duraco in Iowa, twin hurricanes in Louisiana and Texas, fires in California, and that's just here in the U.S. Mm. So all of this combines to make my planned first question for you seem both necessary and absurd. And that's to say, could you talk about how climate change is affecting the global food supply? Yes, I can. And I, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for oh, inviting me. Uh, it's, yeah. I love your work. I love your organization. And I am really delighted to be here. Um, this is Thank such you. a, this is such an important time for this conversation. And it's, um, it's a sobering time. Um, I think we all have our minds on the pandemic. And of course, the the pressures of the pandemic on our food system have been very apparent. We've seen disruptions in um, meat processing facilities. Um, we've seen right. the exposure of the um, uh, really unethical um, conditions for workers in um, processing facilities. Uh, we've seen significant rollbacks of protections for workers, environmental protections, food safety protections, um, which I've been writing about uh, in Bloomberg, uh, where I contribute op-eds. And, uh, and, and that has mm-hmm. been 
really important um, in some ways because it's exposing a lot of existing problems in the food system that um, will be exacerbated by climate change. Already have been, but will be even more difficult to deal with in the years and decades ahead because of this, because it's the, the pressures of climate change on food producers are more chronic and more complicated than the pandemic pressures, right? In some ways, we're getting a, a little kind of sneak preview right. of just how antiquated our food supply chains are um, and that we haven't designed our food systems to um, be able to adapt to and, and, and certainly not preempt um, uh, you know, major disruptions. Uh, we have, of course, very centralized uh, uh, food production that uh, is vulnerable to disruption. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking a lot right now about the importance of distributed um, food production, which I know many sustainable food advocates have been um, talking about for years and decades. Um, but we've been talking about resilience, the importance of food, uh, of, of, of resilience in the food system. And the pandemic has, has accelerated those conversations and really exposed, again, how antiquated and sort of unprepared we are to deal with food system disruptions. Um, but uh, climate change going forward is going to make that uh, even more difficult, right? So um, just, or, or, or it's more likely that uh, farmers and food producers in certain regions might face disruption that might be related to a storm or um, a withering drought, um, or uh, we might see disruptions from invasive insects uh, or bacterial blight, um, withering heat and fires, right? Uh, just this summer, uh, and in actually recent summers, consecutive summers, California has faced withering heat and fire damage to avocado and citrus and almond and strawberry farms to you know livestock production. Uh, water intensive agriculture um, has been taking a real hit um, from heat and drought and and certainly fires. Uh, the the Midwest has been dealing with kind of the opposite problem of, you know, too, too much water, right? Um, storms uh, and uh, rainstorms last summer, um, drenched fields so that they, they were too wet to farm. Uh, and this summer, of course, wind storms and um, have wiped out soy and corn crops. Um, so it's, it's really taken a toll, but what's so confusing about the impacts of of, of climate change on agriculture is that they take so many different forms. Um, and so it's, you know, in, in one region, it's drought, in another region, it's superstorms, um, in another, it's, uh, you know, a, a, a fungus or bacterial blight. Um, uh, it's in, in some regions, it's, it's weather volatility, it's, it's very subtle shifts in season, it's, it's an early bloom in an apple orchard, and then a normal freeze that takes the whole thing out. So um, the the I think the thread of connection between all these stories is is that climate change is something we can taste, right? This is a kitchen table issue in the literal sense. This surprised me as a journalist, right? Because I had been writing about climate right. change and climate impacts on and its 
relevance in the energy industry and in transportation sector and so on. I hadn't really been thinking about climate change in in food terms, um, but I began to realize that uh, as at one scientist put it to me, the single biggest threat of climate change is the collapse of food systems. And I, uh, the other sort of you know is as as we think about climate change and the uh, the different ways in which climate change manifests, um, I, I'm reminded in in your your book you you um, you quote I think a professor from Columbia who says something to the effect of agricultural tools like from the beginning are uh, about um, coaxing more food from the land with less human effort. Yeah, that is um, a quote from uh, Ruth DeFries um, in The Great Ratchet. And I highly recommend that book um, to anyone um, who's interested in, uh, you know, in in the topic of agricultural history. She's an amazing mind. Um, she, she said, every new <laughs> agricultural tool introduced since the first farming settlements has been designed with the same goal to coax more food from the earth with less human effort. And and I think this is important context as we consider how we'll feed a hotter, more populous world in the coming decades, right? We've we've spent the better part of Mm 10,000 years developing a succession of tools um, uh, to, you know, create more food more easily, more abundantly. Um, all of them have been starting with the plow, right? Uh, and every tool since then, right. including synthetic fertilizers, um, have been temporary solutions that generation after generation get replaced or upgraded to work on larger scales. And I, I found that important because we live in a moment right now where we have a very polarized conversation around food. Um, you have the this huge amount of enthusiasm, especially in Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, major investors uh, in like Bill Gates, who have said food is ripe for reinvention. Uh, and now it's time to, you know, throw technology at, at, at the problems of, of vulnerable food systems. Uh, and then you have uh, a lot of sustainable food advocates who are really concerned about this because there have been so many failures in the past in this effort to apply technology fixes to food production, right? It's diminished the food quality and flavor and safety. Um, We've had a lot of failures uh, in in terms of high-tech food. (laughs) Um, uh, And and there's been an argument for de-inventing food. Actually, let's go back to pre-industrial pre-green revolution agriculture, right? Um, let's let's restore tradition in, in food production. And so there's been this, these kind of two camps, the reinventors and the de-inventors. I find myself just um, kind of returning to, you know, maybe um, kind of high carbon food habits of, you know, picking up whatever I can at the, at the grocery store that's been shipped long distances and, you know, going back to the barbecue. And I really struggle with this. I mean, how, I, I, I was wondering, how are we going to fix the problems in our food system if we can't necessarily rely on a critical mass of backyard farming vegetarians to, you know, fix it from the ground up, right? 
And I thought, I mean, if I, I know I've been to slaughterhouses, <laughs> I have been to, I, I've right. seen the worst of our food system in my reporting. And still I'm, <laughs> I'm committing many of the, the crimes of an unvirtuous eater, you know, uh, you know, you know, picking up the long distance products and eating meats and things that I, and, and I, and I've really, really struggled with that. Uh, so I kind of thought, how do we do this on a grand scale? How do we make sustainable uh, you know, uh, changes and, and, and build resilience and sustainability on a grand scale in a way that's affordable and accessible to all of us. And, and it's a twofold challenge. One is, how do we fix the existing problems in our food system, the problems wrought by the green revolution and the, you know, in industrial agriculture? And how do we also begin to prepare for these increasing pressures of climate change and um, and, and disruption in food production. So those two questions really drove me into my reporting. Yes, and I think that as a person who would consider herself both a good reader and a good eater, um, I think that one of the challenges is, and it, it's actually refreshing to um, hear this challenge a little bit as you describe your reporting of this story, is that it it seems as though the answer is not simple math, which is what we want it to be, two plus two equals four, but actually a fairly complex algorithm of two sides who are distrustful of one another, mm -hmm. um, two sides who um, don't really even seem to speak the same language, finding a middle ground. And those two sides are traditional agriculture and emerging technology. Yes, beautifully, beautifully said. Yeah, it's it's true that the, there, 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 there has to be a synthesis of the traditional and the radically new. Um, and you know that's that's difficult because because we're so emotional about food, right? I, I am um, someone who was raised in a household where food was a proxy for love. <laughs> My mom communicated her love and affection for her children through the food she cooked. She was not verbally very affirming, but she was very generous with butter and cream and sauces and gravies <laughs> and all the things served with them. Right. So, so we're very, we're very emotional about food and it's very hard to think, all right, well, let's compromise. Let's sort of do this one way or the other. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like saying, I want to be sort of half in love with someone, right? Like you, you it, it, it's, it, you, you don't, you either fully do something and live something or you, um, or you, you reject that way of life. I mean, it's, it's, that's the kind the way we relate to this. To this topic so it's very hard to say yeah we have to do a little technology and a little you know tradition and make it sort of ancient and new at the same time um that kind of that that's deeply dis disturbing even um and certainly just uncomfortable for a lot of us on this issue right because we we want to be so absolute about the way we want to do it right this is um how our family eats and this is how our community eats and you know and it's and it's a very absolute position i um i i i think though that we leave so many eaters behind when we think in terms that are so absolute it's a um a combination of um 
technology and kind of state of the art science around food and food production. And it's also borrowing from the wisdom of the ages and borrowing from the principles of sustainable agroecology. I think that's probably why I found the um, weeding robots to be, um, I don't know, charming's not the word, but I found myself, (laughs) (laughs) I found myself very interested and also the weeding robot, because, you know, that's a technology that acknowledges like, you know, you can't just spray everything down with DDT, right? Yeah. You've got to like, you know, weeds have to be dealt with by somebody and in some yeah. way. So you know, yeah. I'm glad you raised that because for me, that was the kind of linchpin moment in my research that, oh, and I'll give the listeners a little context. So there's a, um, Peruvian-born entrepreneur and engineer named Jorge Herod, who lives in Silicon Valley now. And he, his company, Blue River Technology, invented this weeding robot named Sand Spray. And, um, and I went to see the maiden voyage of Sand Spray um, in Arkansas and was kind of expecting like C-3PO to walk into the fields and glittering gold with like pincers and to pluck weeds. <laughs> That's what I imagined the future of, of robotic weeders yes. to be. Um, and actually it was a tractor with um, uh, a bunch of cameras on the back of it under a shroud. And the cameras are able to distinguish between weeds and crops and they can um, send little spurts of uh, concentrated fertilizer or herbicide onto the baby weeds. Um, so you have a tractor that's going like kind of at tractor speed, which is 12 miles an hour going down the field mm-hmm. and it's going <laughs> and it's shooting these tiny little jets <laughs> of, of fertilizer. Uh, I, I mean, well, concentrated fertilizer, which can incinerate baby weeds. Um, and it's and it's eliminating the weeds and sparing the crop, so no chemical actually hits the crop. Uh, and uh, and and that as an alternative to broadcast spraying, which is the way that herbicides are typically delivered, right. can eliminate about ninety percent of chemical applications in 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 fields. And I watched this robot learning as it went, like in a, the way that a toddler does. It was learning and getting more and more precise as it moved down. Um, and more efficient in its deployment of this, uh, you know, fertilizer. And at first it was just using dyed water to see how specific it could get. But you could see it hitting pigweed that was surrounding a baby rice crop uh, or corn crop. And it was Uh sparing the crop in the middle and hitting just the weed itself. I mean, it was getting so specific as to, and some of the little um, spurts of, of chemical were as small as a thumbnail, right? And so, because it was so targeted mm-hmm. as opposed to just blanketing field with chemicals, right? What's it more exciting than eliminating 95, 90% roughly of herbicide use is that this bodes very well for a future of intelligent machines that can treat plants individually rather than on a field by field basis, on a on a plant by plant basis. So you have, um, this allows for the, uh, you know, the application, not just of herbic- uh, of herbicides, but also insecticides and fungicides and fertilizers, uh, where 
the machines can read the crops, understand what they need, and give them only exactly what they need. Um, and eventually, this kind of sets the stage for uh, more diversity in fields and intercropping. Uh, and you know, the the longer view is that larger farms can begin to mimic natural systems uh, when you can um, bring crop diversity into the fields. And we know that um, diversity is essential to building resilient food systems. We've just had stupid machines, basically, that have been able to only treat one crop all the same way, down rows and rows of the same crop. Um, and, and so that to me was, and Jorge put it to me this way, he said, robots don't have to remove us from nature, they can help us restore it. Another turning point was when I was in uh, in Kenya and talking to some scientists there, and they said, you know, you have um, this very kind of absolutist idea of either, um, you know, heirloom indigenous crops uh, or industrial agriculture, and it has to be both. We have to be able to cultivate our heirloom and indigenous crops, but we have to do so in a way that they can resist and adapt to um, new pressures. Um, so it's not do we have heirloom crops or do we have GMO crops? It's do we have ways of uh, breeding heirloom nutritious crops that can withstand new climate pressures? And I think that bit of amazement um, comes through in the book. And, uh, you know, I, I will say um, as uh, uh, understanding you as a person who's sort of seen the worst parts of the food system and the realest parts and the bloodiest parts of the food system. Um, this book is ultimately hopeful. And um, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and uh, does, does that hopefulness come from that sense of amazement or, or somewhere else? Well, thank you. That's uh, the highest compliment. And I, and I really feel hopeful <laughs> a, after it. I felt hopeful for two reasons. One, because I, uh, I met so many scientists and farmers and engineers and activists along the way across, you know, many countries and states and actually met many of the most hopeful thinkers and um, food growers that I met were outside the U.S. Um, and and really thinking in a in a, in a real in a dynamic, exciting way. Um, for example, you know, even even folks thinking in ways that don't seem directly related to food, um, but are essential to uh, our food future and our food security. Um, for example, uh, engineers in Israel working on a drought-proof water supply, um, finding ways to recycle gray water and even sewage water. Um, to be hyper pure and reusable, um, and to you know be able to cycle through, um, you know, uh, and, and and develop a, a, a sustainable, reusable water supply, um, and also uh, remove salinity from ocean water. And we heard about desalination plants that are popping up all over California. Um, uh, but there were so many different realms of um, of you know innovative thinking that I encountered um, using AI, artificial intelligence, and robotics in aquaculture to make aquaculture sustainable, to significantly reduce the environmental um, burdens 
of of of, of fish farming, um, and uh, uh, and in meat. I mean, we've seen so much progress in plant-based meats. Um, I even explored cell-based and lab-grown meats, which initially really, uh, really upset upset me. <laughs> I'll just be honest. I was like, and I did. I <laughs> ate a, a plate of lab-grown duck breast that had been harvested fresh from a bioreactor, and had to kind of sign my life away before I did so. Um, but I, the more I learned about that, even some indoor cropping and some vertical farming, um, there were some some approaches that were uh that that were really actually not nearly as kind of threatening to my understanding of sustainable food and and um uh, and functioning natural systems as i as i imagined them to be a lot of it was a lot of my concerns about uh, these areas of innovation were um were were based on just a lack of information and a lack of understanding and now there were plenty of areas of technology applied to food that i looked at that were um, that were not appropriate solutions and that, you know, uh, were not technology saves the day and helps us build resilience. There were, you know, we have to be very careful and cautious about um, some of the emerging, you know, smart ag or climate smart agriculture solutions on the horizon. But we need to inform ourselves. And there's a lot of, of, of really ex uh, exciting progress out there that I think serves the um, and serves and supports the principles of sustainable, low carbon, resilient, and local agriculture. Um, so I, I was pleasantly surprised by all of it. Um, and in the last chapter, I explored even the kind of whiz bang out there sci fi stuff <laughs> the food replacement, the soylent, and the 3D printed food pellets <laughs> at the US Army Research Lab. And, and even there, I found some unexpected optimism um, and some unexpected hope. So um, it, 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 it surprised me too uh, to, to really see that there can be um, a powerful synthesis between um, our values uh, as uh, you know, people who hold dear traditional foods and, um, and, and, uh, and sustainable farming methods and who also want to see that um, made available and affordable to everyone and to who want to see us persist in the, the decades of um, hostile climate pressures to come. I think that there's very good reason to be hopeful. Thank you so much, Amanda. Matt Pearl produced this episode. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Managing Editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Visit southernfoodways.org to learn more about who we are and what we do. While you're there, please consider making a donation to the SFA or becoming a member if you're not already a member. Your dollars help us make gravy. They fund our work, and we need them. We want them. We thank you for those dollars. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear. Mm -hmm.